Imagine, if you will, a podcast. A podcast journeying beyond that which is known to man. It exists in both fandom and discovery, in viewing and critiquing. My name is Matt Hurt. Welcome to Anthology. to Anthology, presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. If this is your first time listening, Anthology is a podcast exploring science fiction anthology storytelling during television's golden age, beginning with The Twilight Zone. Each episode, I take two episodes of the show, give a, spo- uh, a summary of the plot, which includes spoilers, uh, I share notable ga- cast and crew trivia, and then delve into my feelings on the episode as a viewer. You can find more of Anthology at AnthologyPod.com. If you want to contact me, you can tweet me at ObsessiveViewer. Send an email to matt at obsessiveviewer.com or call and leave me a voicemail at 317-762-6099. Today I'll be discussing episodes 7 and 8 of The Twilight Zone, uh, The Lonely and Time Enough at Last. But first I want to talk about a couple things uh, before I get into those discussions. I do want to mention that I watched Forbidden Planet recently. Um, If you listen to the first episode of this podcast, uh, Forbidden Planet, I mentioned that... uh, the actor who played Mike Ferris in the in the pilot episode of The Twilight Zone, where is everybody? Um, he appeared in Forbidden Planet. Forbidden Planet was in uh, was released in 1956. It was like one of the first big budget science fiction films. It was actually a lot of it was um, heavily or a lot of it heavily heavily influenced Gene Roddenberry in creating uh, the original Star Trek. Uh, television series and I really loved it I, I really really enjoyed it um, if you're in the in the Indianapolis area the uh, Artcraft Theater in October is having a I think it's October is having a sci-fi, uh, sci-fi uh, a sci-fi frenzy or sci-fright frenzy something like that they're having a marathon that includes Forbidden Planet I'm going to definitely check that out and just to see it on the big screen but anyway um, the actor who plays uh, Mike Ferris in the pilot episode of the, of, of, uh, of the Twilight Zone um, Earl Holloman, he appears in Forbidden Planet as the cook of the of the ship. Uh, the movie's about just this uh, crew aboard the ship that goes to a planet and uh, finds the finds the sole survivor of a of a colony uh, there. It's a it's a really good movie, but I mean Earl Holloman is is really good in it. Uh, it. There's a lot of you can tell that he was kind of thrown in as comic relief and he plays that really well. Like if you remember the first episode of uh, the twilight zone, he, he plays up the comedy pretty, pretty well there, or at least the, the charm, I guess, of his character in forbidden planet. He's kind of a, kind of a drunk, but he's, he's kind of minded or he kind of has in mind the crew's, um, happiness, uh, with, um, he keeps that in mind. I mean, so it's a good movie. He's, he's really good in it. So I recommend it. Also, last thing before I get started, I got some feedback, and that was awesome. <laughs> uh, I got a tweet from a listener. I'm loading it up now. Uh, Victor, he said that he found the show through another Twilight Zone podcast. Great job. Looking forward to hearing your first impressions of each episode, um, which I really, which I really appreciate. Because, uh, uh, yeah, because I'm I'm kind of just flying by the seat of my pants here. Um, and the other Twilight Zone podcast he mentioned was uh, the guys at Twilight Pwn, um, which I'm really looking forward to digging into and checking out. And then also that same day, like hours later, we got some feedback on the Twitter or on the Facebook page for Anthology, which you can find at uh, facebook.com slash anthology pod. It's a good way to reach me if you have any any feedback or any uh, comments about episodes I'm going to bring up that you want to throw in for or, or throw your thoughts into that I can throw into this episode. But anyway, uh, Joseph wrote on the anthology podcast, uh, Facebook page. He said, as a big twilight zone fan who has listened to every twilight zone podcast out there, I must say I'm pleased by this new project. You're doing great as a one man show. I suggest reaching out or at least listening to the other podcasts or the other episodes of these shows for some more perspective slash opinions. I really appreciate that Joseph. Cause I'm really, uh, not necessarily self-conscious, but I'm very nervous. I was very nervous going into this uh, endeavor as holding down a one-man show. So I really appreciate that, and I look forward to uh, 
hopefully not disappointing you <laughs> in the future. And uh, I do have some plans to reach out to some other Twilight Zone podcasters to see about co- collaborations or, or bonus episodes and interviews and stuff like that. Um, right now, I'm just trying to get the first season out um, and everything. I'm recording this the day before I'm releasing it, which I didn't want to do. I didn't want to get behind that much because I wanted to have a nice backlog. So anyway, so thank you for uh, to thank you to Victor and to Joseph for reaching out and uh, contacting me. And now on to my thoughts and feelings on the lonely and time enough at last. All right, so first up this week is The Lonely. It was aired uh, November 13th, 1959. It was actually the first episode in the production schedule of uh, The Twilight Zone after the pilot episode, Where Is Everybody? All right, uh, I'm going to start off by reading a summary of the plot from the book The Twilight Zone Companion by Mark Zuccari. And here we go. Allenby, the captain of a supply ship that travels the solar system, takes pity on Corey, who's serving a 50-year sentence for murder, and leaves him a box containing Alicia, a robot that looks and sounds exactly like a woman. Initially, Corey is repelled by the robot, but eventually his heart melts and he falls deeply in love with her. Eleven months pass, and then one day the supply ship lands. Allenby tells Corey he's received a full pardon and that they've come to get him. But there's a hitch. Corey can only take 15 pounds of gear, and Alicia weighs more than that. Corey refuses to leave her behind, claiming that she's a woman. Reluctantly, Allenby draws his gun and shoots Alicia full in the face, revealing a mass of smoldering wires. He tells Corey, all you're leaving behind is loneliness. Stunned, Corey replies, I must remember that. I must remember to keep that in mind. This episode stars Jack Warden as James A. Corey. Uh, he was born in Newark, New Jersey, but he was raised in Louisville, Kentucky. He was expelled from high school for fighting, uh, and from there he went into professional boxing under the name Johnny Costello, uh, which was his mother's maiden name. He didn't make much money, so he joined the Navy. For most of his three years in the Navy, he served in China. In 1941, he joined the Merchant Marine, which is a fleet of U.S. civilian-owned merchant vessels operating, uh, operated by either the government or the private sector engaging commercial or transportation of goods and services in and out in and out of the waters of the United States. A year after that, he joined the Army and became a paratrooper in the 101st Airborne Division. He actually missed out on the D-Day invasion of Normandy due to a broken leg from a practice jump. But while he was recuperating from those injuries, he read a play that moved him so much that he decided to become an actor after the war. He went on to fight in the Battle of the Bulge, and then after he was discharged, he moved to New York City to pursue acting on the GI Bill. Uh, he went in, he went to acting school, then joined a theater company, and from there, his uh, first television after after working a lot in the, in the theater company and everything, his uh, first television role was in 1948. Uh, but he continued working on the stage and everything. Um, in 1951, he made his film debut in an uncredited role in You're in the Navy Now. Uh, the Lonely was his first of two appearances on The Twilight Zone, the other being season one's The Mighty Casey, which will be discussed in episode 18 of this podcast, um, which will actually be the season finale of the podcast. I'll talk more about his his acting career in that episode. Co-starring in this episode is Jean Marsh as Alicia. Uh, this was her only episode of The Twilight Zone, but it's actually it's really interesting because she's one of only three actors who appeared in both The Twilight Zone and Doctor Who. Uh, the other two are Harold Innocent, who was in season two, episode twenty-nine, the obsolete man of the Twilight Zone, and Terrence DeMarney, who was in season three, episode thirty-one, uh, which was called the Tradens. That isn't Jean Marsh's only connection to Doctor Who. She was actually married uh, to John Pertwee for, a f- I think, five years before he became. Uh, sometime before he became the third doctor. She was born in London, and she became interested in show business when she took dance and mime classes as therapy for a childhood illness. I did some Googling, and I couldn't really figure out, or I couldn't find what that illness was. Uh, She appeared in a couple episodes of Doctor Who and had a busy theater and television career. She uh, starred in in the sitcom spinoff of 1980s 9 to 5, um, which ran for five seasons. She was also in 1985's Return to Oz and 1988's Willow. She's probably best known for co-creating and starring in Masterpiece Theater's Upstairs, Downstairs, which I don't know much about, but I think it was something of a precursor to Downton Abbey. I don't think there was uh, they have anything or anything at all in terms of uh, commonality between creative forces. But it's worth noting that in 2010... 
uh, revival, a revival of Upstairs Downstairs was um, brought to the screen. But uh, after Downton Abbey became such a big hit, uh, ups, the revival of Upstairs Downstairs was canceled. And it was also um, the second series of Upstairs Downstairs, the revival of it. Um, Jean Marsh had suffered a stroke and a heart attack that kept her from being in it as much. But uh, but she's still alive, and she was in her most recent credit. It was in an episode of the British mystery show Grant Chester last year. Rounding out the cast for this episode is John Denner um, as Captain Captain Allenby. Uh, this is his. This is the first of three Twilight Zone episodes for John. Uh, he was also in season three, episode twelve, "The Jungle," in a starring role. Both of these are in starring starring, starring roles, actually. Um, and season five, episode thirty-two, "Mr. Garrity and the Graves." Um, it's. I'll, I'll just touch on briefly some some little tidbits about him, and then I'll expand more into his career and everything when I talk about one of his uh, starring roles in the in the show. But he started as an animator for Walt Disney Studios. <laughs> Uh, then he went on to work as a radio DJ, and then he became a professional pianist. And I just think that that's really interesting. Uh, that's a very strange um, trajectory for someone to go career-wise uh, that would eventually land him into being an actor. But I'll talk more about that when I get to season three of the show, it's particularly episode 12, The Jungle. Once again, of course, this episode was written by Rod Serling. I can't speak to what frame of mind he was in when he wrote it, but uh, the theme of this episode is, is pretty straightforward. It's uh, it's about shedding the baggage that we carry. Um, in this episode, it's loneliness and isolation, but I feel like Alicia could represent anything, as I'll get into here in a second. Director for this episode was Jack Smite. This was his first of four Twilight Zone episodes. Uh, the other three were all in season two, episodes eight, eleven, and seventeen. I'll talk more about his career um, overall in those episodes next season. But he did. I do want to mention that he won one primetime Emmy in 1959 for an episode of Alcoa Theater called Eddie. So good for him. So now we've come to my feelings as a viewer on this episode of The Twilight Zone. As I said a few minutes ago, the episode is about loneliness. That's that's pretty obvious. It's one of the more overt themes and uh, statements that the show has made so far. What I really appreciated about it, though, was that it it dealt with James Corey's imprisonment on the, on the asteroid in a very human way. Maybe this is due more to Jack Warden's performance as, as Corey, but he really just nailed the role. And the the writing was very strong for him in this episode because he ran the gamut of emotion. You felt his painful isolation and and his gleeful anticipation when he saw the spaceship landing. And you felt how angry he was when he was clinging to the hope of bringing Alicia back with him. It was just a lot, a lot, a very dense performance of, of a very dense character in a 25-minute episode, 25 episode. It was actually pretty pretty incredible on his part. Maybe, ah, you know, I would probably say that this may be my my favorite performance so far in these first uh, handful of episodes so far. I still do have a uh, soft spot for Earl Earl Holloman in the in the pilot, though. This episode is also surprisingly upbeat. Uh, I I mentioned this before, but I see Alice as a metaphor for Corey's isolation. Really, that like I said, it's a more overt metaphor being spoken here, but. I really liked that the main question that confronts him isn't whether he should stay with her or leave. Um, that actually doesn't even come up hardly at all. It's whether he should embrace his loneliness or shed it in favor of a normal life. And he eventually comes to the realization after Alan B shoots shoots her in the face that he needs to keep keep perspective of his humanity. And that's that's a powerful statement in this episode. It's it's very very strong it's a very strong statement about human contact and how this episode overall is is about why we need human contact and why why isolation is is no one's uh, favorite thing really um and also i felt it was unique that they framed it around a convict without 
going into much detail about his crime. It gave him gave the character depth without risking the likability. Um, if you listen to last week's episode, you'll know that I wasn't too fond of uh, Walter Bedecker in Escape Clause because he was just way too unlikable. Here, there's a better balance with uh, James Corey. You you know that he's a that he's a murderer, but there's just references to him being or having murdered out of self defense. And then that that's just almost a throwaway line, but it's it's kind of sits with you, like thinking like, okay, well, I I can get behind liking this character, and the the kind of bond between Allenby and and Corey is is pretty pretty interesting. It's it's a bit one sided, um, but you can kind of feel you can kind of sense how um, how Allenby's conflicted about leaving the guy there and kind of feeling you know feeling down about the guy because he only has in that first scene where they where they. Uh, drop off Alicia. It's like he's got 15 minutes, and Allenby's just basically, or um, I'm sorry, uh, Corey is just basically pleading with him to stay, uh, just to play play a game of cards. It's it's kind of kind of sad, and it really hammers home the the isolation storyline of of the character. The concept of this episode is actually is, is also just really incredible. Um, this takes place in a future where criminals get sent to asteroids. This episode establishes a world that's rich enough to fill a movie or a novel, um, and it's making it so contained to the twenty-five minute runtime is is really it's perfect for it. I mean, I would love to see this concept of, of criminals and and this futuristic criminal justice system that that is so cruel in its in its practices being explored more in this in this uh concept of being i so so far isolated from all of humanity i would love to see it explored more and i'm sure that there's been a pl- plenty of science fiction written in this kind of setting in this kind of world i'll actually have to look into a little bit but here in the twilight zone it just it sets such a such a world and such a story so perfectly, and it's it's spectacular in its establishment of its um, vastness. One of the great things about anthology series overall is that it's twenty five minutes of just dipping into this world and, and dipping into character stories, and then you're out of it. Like we're never going to go back to Corey and and on the asteroid or or this world ever again. But here for the twenty five minutes of the Twilight Zone's what seventh episode, you feel you feel like you know this this world or you know enough about this world that it's it's you know it sticks with you, and it really makes you be able to side with and and really get invested in Corey's story. And I really liked the the kind of almost subtle way that Allenby's shipmates handled or reacted to to Corey like they were angry for having for having to go on these supply runs for months and months at a time and being away from their families but i feel like that's the that's really the only uh, allegory to to humans the human component of the story um humanity and and the society that resides on earth in this story i feel like that shipmates reaction to talking to Corey, it can be kind of extrapolated into being a metaphor for how human human uh, humanity sees criminals in this in this world i mean they've they've gone so far as to just ship them off into onto asteroids for isolation and i mean when you kind of unpack the plot and unpack the story a little bit it's it's a bit nonsensical i mean you've you've got one soul uh, convict on a, an asteroid that it requires res- uh, resupplies throughout the year, and I mean the amount of fuel and time and manpower that it takes to, to that it must take to do that, and for several other uh, convicts, it it seems judging from Allenby's statements about picking up other criminals throughout on on other asteroids, you kind of, <laughs> I mean it it's it's a bit it's a bit. It's a big pill to swallow, really. Um, if you ignore that, it's still a very, very ground, uh, a very strong story about about human beings and, and human connection and stuff like that. And I do want to mention that shooting in in Death Valley, they filmed this in Death Valley, and it makes it feel 
it makes it feel just like it's got a huge budget, and it makes it feel like a much bigger production than than just a, a simple television series, uh, anthology series on TV. Um, the vastness of the of the shots. I mean, there are shots that are just of of the wasteland around Corey, and you really feel like that emptiness and that loneliness that he feels because of those shots, just showing just massive expanses of of desert wastelands and 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 dunes and stuff like that it's just he's he's got this one little shack and this one this car that can really go nowhere really when you think about it because i i don't know he just drives like he's got a a a big playground from on which to drive but what's the point like they even mentioned that in the in the episode what's the point in driving around if you don't have a destination Oh, on the whole, this episode really painted a really in, interesting picture of hum, humans and, and how we view criminals, and it's it's a nice allegory for the criminal justice system and and you know locking away criminals without really a second thought or anything like that. I mean, I feel like this episode is just a really strong episode on on its own in terms of its story of of human contact and having this really cruel cruel and unusual type of imprisonment it's just it's very fascinating and it's it's it creates a world that i would love to revisit at some point and i assume i'd have to find a new a different medium but it feels like this world that resides in in the lonely is one that would be very worth exploring fully and something else i really enjoyed about this episode is that it didn't make this grand statement about ai or robots or the consciousness of you know artificial intelligence or anything like that it was just uh, like i said alicia is just kind of a kind of a metaphor for whatever Corey is putting into her in terms of his personal um demons really she's a kind of catch-all for his for his innermost demons and and his uh growing not growing insanity but but grasping it's his one it's his one foothold into sanity left over from being isolated for so long and the way that it's depicted in the episode is that she is really just a vessel for his loneliness he's he's on his last uh last leg of sanity he's on his last he he has his he's barely grasping his sanity and through her he is pouring all of his loneliness and and isolation into her and that's what she represents and i feel like that's a very smart move in terms of it's it's incredibly it's incredibly smart writing on serling's part because you can really take you can really take this template and put into as a viewer you can put into Alicia in this in this story that's being told, you can put into Alicia whatever personal demons you have or personal issues you're trying to work out. Also, it's kind of a nice morality tale. It's because it, it ends on the note of Corey um, Allen be telling Corey that he needs to keep in mind that you know he needs to let go of his loneliness and stuff like that, and, and not be not let it weigh him down. It's 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 the most straightforward type of. Uh, cautionary tale as i can imagine in in a twilight zone episode because he's telling him that that alicia is his loneliness and his loneliness is weighing him down as the viewer you can put in anything if you're i assume if you're depressed or dealing with dealing with personal issues you can kind of see it as you can input those feelings into alicia's depiction in the show and can resonate with you in a in a big way really before i move on to trivia and all that i do want to mention that they refer to they pronounce everyone in this episode pronounced robot as robot and i i thought that i was just amusing i don't really know i don't i don't have anything more to say about that except that i it just got a little chuckle out of me yeah and also this is completely baseless it has nothing i don't know what point i'm trying to make here or what whatever but i think it's kind of an interesting coincidence that the main character's name is james a Corey, and although it's not spelled the same way there is a uh, book series called the expanse that it's about to actually be a television show on sci-fi in the, in december it's a kind of a very <laughs> no pun intended expansive space opera um, i'm actually really excited about the about the about the tv show i might 
Nah, I don't want to commit myself to doing a podcast about it, but I might. But it's uh, it's got five books. But anyway, the author, the authors of the book are, are of the book series are these two guys named Ty Frank and uh, Daniel Abraham, and they write under the pen name James S. A. Corey. And I thought that that was an interesting coincidence because a lot of the expanse. Uh, a lot of the drama in the expanse has has to do with uh, colonizing the solar system. It takes place in a in a in a uh, in a future where we've we haven't mastered interstellar travel, but we have mastered traveling around our solar system, and we've colonized the asteroid belt. And there's a lot of uh, personal conflict between uh, different factions, like people that were born in the asteroid belt and and reside there are called belters, and they're slightly different. The the gravity kind of changes their their appearance to their very tall and very elongated. Uh, limbs and stuff like that. It's very slender. It's, it's a really fascinating, fascinating book series. I'm reading book three now, but anyway, I do want to mention really quickly that uh, this episode is kind of, kind of uh, an interesting time for me to to watch it and review it because I actually just recently watched uh, Ex Machina, the uh, sci-fi film from uh, Alex Garland who wrote Sunshine and Twenty Days Later, two of my favorite movies of the past fifteen years. But it's his directorial debut, and it deals with a lot of these kind of concepts of of humanity and and artificial intelligence and how they kind of interact with each other. It's if you're looking for if you if you're watching this episode and you're kind of not feeling the or or you want to explore the concepts of of humanity within artificial intelligence and whether they're human or not. Uh, I definitely recommend checking out Ex Machina. It's a, it's a really cool, really good movie. Really fantastic movie, actually. As far as trivia for this episode, I mentioned earlier that this was filmed in Death Valley. And, of course, it was insanely hot during filming. And since they wanted to show that the characters were, you know, dripping sweat and to to demonstrate how how awful the conditions on that were, but they wanted to display that they, that the characters were sweaty and and all that stuff, but it was so hot filming in death Valley that the sweat effects that are normally achieved by, by mixing, uh, the makeup effects are mixed with, uh, water and oil. They actually had to, uh, what was happening was that the, the, it was so dry and so arid there that the water was just kind of just, just, evaporating off off the skin so they couldn't they couldn't really get a base like sweat effects there because it was you know just so dry so what they ended up having to do is they had to mix uh like 90 percent oil and 10 percent water to get them to actually stay like they would have uh so a lot of the a lot of the makeup effects of the sweat are just are just droplets of oil that stayed there um for it, and also toward the end of the episode, where where Jean Marsh or Alicia is laying on the laying on the ground at the end of the episode, they actually put a thermometer next to her, and it turns out that the ground where she was laying was around 140 degrees. It's just it's sounds like just ridiculous conditions to film in. And uh, director of photography George Clements, he actually collapsed from the heat while he was setting up a shot. I think he was on a uh, Maybe not stepladder, but he was on a crane or something, and he collapsed and fell to the ground. A lot of the crew members thought that maybe he was having a heart attack. No, but he was just he just collapsed from the heat, uh, and it was just so unbearable. Several other crew members couldn't bear it either, and there was there was a lot of uh, it was just a really messy really messy shoot. And I guess the last two days of shooting, they uh, had the scenes left to film that were that took place in the shack and in, in Corey's shack. And they they figured they they ended up just packing up and going to a to an air conditioned set to to film those scenes and that made everyone else really happy. Of course, before we move on to the next episode, here's a highlight from a recent episode of the Obsessive Viewer. It's a weekly movie and TV podcast that I host with my friends Mike and Tiny. Yep, after nine eleven, Haley Joel Osment's like, I'm getting out of here. I can't be around you anymore. I need to go my own way because horrible things are happening. I ruined <laughs> this intern at the White House's life because you took me on a on a on a trip to see the White House, and now nine eleven's happened. I can't be around you. So he's driving across country to get away from uh, Forrest, who is running after him <laughs> to find him again. <laughs> of course, you can find the Obsessive Viewer on iTunes, Stitcher, and at obsessiveviewer.com.
And next up, of course, we have Time Enough at Last. Uh, seriously, this is probably the most iconic episode of the Twilight Zone that I'm aware of. At least coming from a first-time viewer of the show, this episode is the one that kind of permeated pop culture more than any other episode for me. Um, like I was more aware of this episode than many other um, episodes of the of, of the Twilight Zone um, before I saw it. So, which is weird because I went through and I'm getting ahead of myself, but I went through and I saw that on the trivia page for this episode on IMDb, there's not much listed in ter- uh, in terms of shows and movies that referenced it, which I think that that trivia page may just be out of date, or I think the the connections page is just out of date. But I just I remember this this episode being one of the ones that you really, really remember. Um, it was aired November 20th, 1959. And as always, I'll go ahead and give you a rundown of the episode summary. Um, again, this will be spoiling it. So if you want to go back and watch it uh, before you listen to this, uh, that is advised. Uh, this episode summary comes from the book The Twilight Zone Companion by Mark Zakri. Mild-mannered and myopic, Bank teller Henry Bemis loves to read, but neither his shrewish wife nor efficiency-minded boss give him much chance. Sneaking into the vault on his lunch hour to read, he is knocked unconscious by a mammoth shockwave. When he comes to, he discovers that the world has been devastated by a nuclear war and that he, having been protected by the vault, is the last man on Earth. He decides to commit suicide, but at the final moment his eyes fall on the ruins of a library. For him, it is paradise. Gleefully, he piles the books high, organizing his reading for the years to come. But as he settles down to read the first book, his glasses slip off his nose and smash, trapping him forever in a hopelessly blurry world. This episode starred Burgess Meredith as Henry Bemis. He's best known for uh, his role as Mickey in the Rocky franchise, but he's also known for the Penguin in the old Adam West Batman series and movie and then previous to Twilight Zone, he starred in an adaptation of, of Mice and Men in, uh, back in 1939. He played George, and it's kind of funny. I, I don't know if this was an intentional reference from Serling or not, but in the closing narration, Serling opens it with uh, the best, pl- best laid plans of Mice and Men and Henry Bemis, uh, and then he goes on to his n- narration. I don't know if that's intentional or not, but um, I, would, I would think that it would be kind of a nice little tongue-in-cheek thing. Um, this isn't his only, this isn't Burgess Meredith's only, uh, episode of the Twilight Zone. He went on to be on three other episodes and he also appeared in two episodes of Night Gallery. Um, and then he was also in one episode of Tales of Tomorrow, which was another science fiction anthology show. I think it predates, uh, Twilight Zone. And writer for this episode is Rod Serling. This was his personal favorite episode, but this episode was based on a short story by Len Venable. Um, this was the first episode, I'm, I'm not sure about production order, but this is the first episode to air that was based on an existing work. If you're interested in the short story, you can find it uh, being read by uh, Tom Elliott of the Twilight Zone podcast on the Twilight Zone podcast's feed. Um from what I understand, I haven't, I haven't gotten a chance to listen to it or read it, but um, the short story is is a bit is a bit bare. I think it's a, it's a little bit more straightforward. I think Serling and in adapting it, Serling uh, made Henry Bemis more well rounded and and more um, more fleshed out. This was one of twelve episodes of The Twilight Zone that director John Bram would uh, direct. Uh, he was a German born director who arrived in Hollywood in 1937. He was signed to a three-year contract at Columbia and followed by another three years at 20th Century Fox. Uh, He specialized in suspense thrillers, often with psychological undertones and uh, kind of involved madness in a lot of of his uh, work, I guess. This is all pulling from the IMDb biography of him. Uh, By the mid-1950s, he segued segued from uh, directing films to directing television, but he kind of stayed with the more macabre um, storytelling and stories. Uh, he directed a lot of the top top episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents and The Outer Limits and the Alfred Hitchcock Hour, and then also, of course, The Twilight Zone. He retired in 1968, and he spent the last years of his life confined to a wheelchair and uh, died in 82 at uh, the respectable age of 89. Uh, for this episode, though, he won a uh, Director's Guild Award. 
So yeah, I'll go ahead and get into my feelings as a viewer on this episode then. I, I love it. I, I really do. I don't know if I would say that it's my favorite episode so far in the series. I, I think I... I think I'd still hold a soft spot for walking distance. I think that there was more, the more emotionally poignant episode for me. Um, and this episode, but, but this episode in its own right is, is great. Uh, Burgess Meredith is fantastic. He, uh, as someone who wears eyeglasses, I, I respect, uh, I sympathize with his plight in this episode, but he, what he does really well in this episode is he, he really showcases the, transformation of, of going from this, this just, you know, book, bookworm guy to the last man on earth to, to slowly realizing kind of, kind of realizing that he's got nothing to live for and then finding the books. It's, it's just a really, a really well done progression for the character and he plays it really well, I think. Um, and the thing that I, I kind of keep coming back to when I, when I go into the twilight zone is I try to find the kind of, subtext or the uh the messages of the episode um and and of the story because i know that one of rod sterling's big things about starting the twilight zone was that he was censored and he wanted to make uh, he wanted to make a show about uh real world events and stuff like that but he realized that once that if he can't if he couldn't outright tell stories about what was going on without being censored. He could just as easily make it a futuristic story or a science fiction story and still tell the same story. So I'm kind of conscious of that as I watch these episodes. And what kind of struck me about uh, Time Enough at Last, and this, I mean, this may be completely on the nose and, and really uh, obvious, but I mean, detecting subtext has never really been one of my strongest suits. But I found that this episode is a really could be a really strong allegory for addiction, um, which, which I find kind of weird. I, I'm a little back and forth with it because if you subscribe to that theory, I, I haven't really read up on, on other people's analysis of this episode, but if you subscribe to the theory that Henry Bemis's story is an allegory for addiction, then that makes literature drugs, which is just kind of a, kind of a bizarre, a, a bizarre twist. Cause you know, but but I mean, throughout the episode, at least throughout the first act, he's very he lets he lets his love of reading um, dictate his life in in un- unhealthy ways. It's I mean, it's probably one of the more straightforward allegories for for addiction I've ever seen, or one of the more straightforward uh, metaphors for for addiction that I've seen on film. But when you get to the kind of hateful wife and and the kind of crude and rash boss um i kind of feel like if you if you watch it through the lens of this addictive personality um are they hateful and crude is that just a matter of perspective like we're viewing this from henry bemis's perspective and you know they're being very just very shrill very angry and and i mean they're kind of they're kind of really mean spirited toward him because he loves his books. But I mean, if you were to substitute books for any kind of illicit substance or, or, um, or an addiction to something that's, that's really harmful to him, to his health and everything, they kind of seem a little bit more within the right to berate him and, you know, all that. But I don't know. I, I think that, Maybe I'm reaching, but I I don't think so because I I think that you can really kind of transpose that type of story in or that type of subtext into the story if it wasn't the intention either because it fits kind of surprisingly well, um, and it's kind of a kind of brings an interesting uh, layer to the cruel twist of fate at the end of of Henry not being able to finding unlimited supply of his of his drug for lack of a better word and then being incapable of consuming it at the end it's kind of a kind of an interesting interesting twist there um it also plays on the uh kind of i assume cold war fear of nuclear winter also i mentioned this in the first episode of anthology about the pilot episode of the show uh saying that when mike in that first episode said that he or was was wondering if maybe a bomb went off um that kind of tapped into kind of the cultural fear of the time i i believe of you know uh 
nuclear winter, basically. It was kind of in the forefront of the mind. This episode is, I mean, this was seven, seven episodes later, and we have a full-on nuclear, nuclear explosion and nuclear winter that was really kind of interesting. I applauded the first episode of the series for kind of having that be a subtle bit of information thrown in to kind of really uh, bridge a relatability to the audience. And here, I mean, here it's kind of the reverse of that. It's a full blown explosion and, and you see the, you see the fallout and everything. Um, but it's effective here too. It's, it's quite effective actually. Like the set design and the production design is really, really spectacular for the time and for the budget that the, that I'm sure the show had, um, the, the backdrops of the, uh, the cityscape can kind of feel a little bit like, uh, like when, when Henry goes back toward the toward the wasteland and and he kind of goes back not backstage but he goes downstage I think that's the correct terminology but he goes back toward the toward the backdrop you kind of get the sense like he's about to run into a wall that's a painting of the of the wasteland which it it didn't I mean it's not a bad it it wasn't distracting or anything but that's just something that I noticed and I may be spoiled from modern day. Um, big budget movies and, and TV shows and stuff like that. But you, I kind of got that impression, but that's not to detract from the spectacular set design throughout the rest of the episode. I mean, the amount of detail put into just shots of, of him wandering the, wandering the fallout. Like that's something that it's the scope of it is something that I hadn't, we hadn't seen in the twilight zone yet. Because the Twilight Zone up until this point was filmed on a lot of like back lots and and central um, center like uh, singular sets and and things like that. And this is kind of a more open world kind of designed set. It's not like a it's not just a back lot or or just a uh, an abandoned city or anything like that. It's it's you know there's a lot of care put into the detail of this episode, and I really appreciated that. And I really I liked it. It kind of helped sell it. Um, I will say that it's kind of it's kind of funny to see Henry Bemis kind of wandering around. Like n- the knowledge of you know how nuclear bombs work and everything now is uh, it's kind of funny. I don't know if this is really something that was no that would have had to been. Um, he would have just been dead from radiation poisoning <laughs> pretty uh, pretty quickly. But I mean that that I mean that's neither here nor there. But. It's something to consider. Um, for this episode, or in the in the lead up to recording this this piece of the episode, I went to um, to the Twilight Zone subreddit at r slash Twilight Zone, and I asked the good folks there what their feelings on Time Enough at Last was, and I got I got a handful of pretty good responses from from the users there. Um, I'll just go ahead and read read off the ones that I got um, from user Dueno Dude. Um, he says, Time Enough at Last is probably my favorite Twilight Zone episode and the one I've referenced in conversations more than any other. Such excellent casting of Burgess Meredith as a book lover whose single-minded focus is constantly interrupted by colleagues and his wife. Great build-up to see him realize his catastrophe is really a blessing where interruptions are a thing of the past. And then in classic Twilight Zone form, a single moment of clumsiness wipes it all away again. I agree completely. Um while I, while I, well, it's not my personal favorite so far, but I really think he, uh, this user really nailed it on the head of why it works so well. Um, then user Metallic Opeth uh, said, it's definitely the best episode, I think, if not a top three for sure. Everything about it is perfect. The script and acting are superb. Burgess did a fantastic job with the role. I agree. Uh, and then... <laughs> This user has an awesome username. Uh, Glitter Sniffer fifteen says it's a good one, but I prefer some others to this one. I'm a huge book lover, and honestly, I have felt like Burgess Meredith a lot of time. However, I really enjoy the obsolete man. I'm looking forward to checking out that episode. Um, Glitter Sniffer fifteen. Um, I think I want to say that that's in season three, or it might be later this season. I'm not sure, but I'm looking forward to it. And thank you for your comment. I wonder what the, I actually wonder what that user thinks of the analogy of it being an um the thought of it being a metaphor for addiction. Hmm. Um then finally Mr. Guy Incognito uh says, "Yes, one of the most iconic of the series. There was a parody of it in I think Family Guy that was pretty funny as well." 
So those are the Reddit comments. Um, let me know if you like me doing that. I'm, I'm thinking about throwing in to the uh, throwing throwing in kind of every week or so um, threads into the Twilight Zone subreddit to see what people think of the show or think of the specific episode I'm about to talk about. But anyway, so let me know what you think of that. And to go off of what Mr. Guy Incognito said about um, there being a parody of it in Family Guy. I think that that's one of the – I may be mistaken. When I, when I mentioned that the connections page on IMDb lists only a, only a handful of, of references to this episode of The Twilight Zone, I'm sure that there are more out there. But I do remember the Family Guy episode that he's referring to. I want to say that it's like season three. I think it's, uh, I think it's titled Wasted Talent where um, Peter can only – Peter finds out that he can play the piano perfectly – when he's drunk. So there's a cutaway where, um, he wonders where, if he's destroying any brain cells or anything like that. And then they show his, his, he has one brain cell left and it's, it's basically Henry Bemis and he's got a lot of books and he's like, finally, it's all, I have time enough at last to read all my books. And then he crushes his glasses. So, but I do remember that episode specifically being, um, one of the points in pop culture where I, where I saw reference to this episode. And I, I mean, I mean, when, when Family Guy was canceled originally, it was I discovered it on DVD and I watched it ad nauseum. So this episode really kind of stuck out to me. Um, now that I think about it, it might actually be might actually have been the episode uh, parroting Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. So I, I think that it's that's indicative of it being a, a big point of pop culture. I mean, sure, that's only one example, but I do feel like seeing that. Seeing that depiction in Family Guy, like I immediately recognized it as being something uh, re- related to the Twilight Zone. I just didn't know what exactly um, it was relating to at the time, because, like I said, this is my first time watching Twilight Zone. Um, I eventually found out that this is what it was referencing. Obviously, um, a little bit of trivia before I round out this episode of Anthology. Um, Burgess Meredith cited this episode as being one of the biggest things from his career that he was getting, that he would get noticed for like every, every time he uh, had a run in with a fan, they would reference this episode. I think it reached a point where it got kind of annoying to him, but I think that speaks a lot to the cultural impact and, and the, the power of this episode of the twilight zone, because I mean, like I said, uh, Burgess Meredith was Mickey in the Rocky franchise. And those were, those were big, big movies and yet he was still not necessarily pestered but he was still being you know getting praise for his portrayal portrayal of henry bemis in this one episode of the twilight zone i think that speaks a lot to its quality and while i don't think that it's my favorite episode so far um it's it's still a really good story and a and really well executed show of the uh, episode of the twilight zone. Oh, and I will also say before I close out this segment of the podcast that I really did appreciate the effects, I guess of the, of the bomb going off when he's in the, when Henry is in the, in the vault and he's reading and there's like a, a big, you hear the explosion and the, the, you know, the camera shakes and all that. But before all of that, like a page flips open as if by a wind and uh his his time clock or his little uh pocket watch uh just explodes and i thought that that was a really nice detail added um even though you know i don't really get why his glasses wouldn't have exploded but then again you wouldn't have an episode i'm not trying to nitpick here or anything like that with with that and the the whole uh nuclear fallout thing because as i said i think that this episode was more about i i assume that this episode was more about uh, a metaphor for addiction and and struggling with that and how it uh, can destroy you and <laughs> destroy everything around you. I think if you kind of implant that subtext to this episode, it's it's a pretty powerful statement about you know the things that we love could how the things that we love could end up being our downfall. So that does it for this week's anthology, a podcast exploring science fiction anthology television during TV's golden age, starting with The Twilight Zone. Um, I want to thank you for listening and thank you for downloading. And if you don't mind, go onto iTunes and hit a uh, 
uh, hit the rating and write a quick review of the podcast. It really helps out a lot to get anthology out there to, to as many listeners as, as I can. And also while you're at it, check out Obsessive Viewer. I, I really am proud of that podcast. If you're into movies and television, just more broad topics than, you know, one classic science fiction television show. <laughs> And join me next week. I'll have a new episode of Anthology up. I'll be covering episodes 9 and 10 of The Twilight Zone's first season. That's uh, Perchance to Dream and Judgment Night. And I'm looking forward to, I'm looking forward to talking about both of those. Uh, once again, that's another episode about time travel. And there's kind of a fun, fun episode. Fun and confusing episode. I'm looking forward to rewatching that with Perchance to Dream. Um, kind of a bizarre episode but anyway check it uh check out the next episode for my thoughts on those and uh please rate and review on itunes it helps out a lot and i'll talk to you next week thanks for listening Thank you for listening to Anthology, presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. You can find past episodes of the show at AnthologyPod.com. And please subscribe on iTunes and leave a rating and review. It helps the show out more than you might think. Of course, I crave feedback or conversation of any kind from the audience, so please email your thoughts and feelings about the show to Matt at ObsessiveViewer.com. Or you can tweet me at Obsessive Viewer and make sure you like the Facebook page at facebook.com slash anthology pod. Of course, you can also leave me a voicemail at 317-762-6099 for a chance to have it played on the show. If you like what you've heard here, I urge you to check out The Obsessive Viewer, a weekly movie and TV podcast I host with my friends Tiny and Mike. Also check out the Obsessive Viewer blog at obsessiveviewer.com where I write movie reviews, TV reviews, and the occasional editorial about the business of entertainment. You can find all of that at obsessiveviewer.com. If you want even more obsessive content in your life, subscribe to the Obsessive Viewer subreddit at r slash obsessiveviewer. And check out obsessivebooknerd.com for book reviews, author spotlights, and a general celebration of reading. Finally, if you're philosophically curious, check out my friend Tiny's side project podcast, The Secular Perspective, which explores the concepts of faith, religion, and existence from the perspective of secular hosts. You can find that at thesecularperspective.com. Once again, thank you very much for listening, and I'll see you next time. Uh, however, I really enjoy the obsolete mate. However, I really enjoy the obsolete. However, I really enjoy the obsolete. Wow. However, I really enjoy the obsolete man. It's a really. It's it's a world. It. This episode. This episode establishes a rich. Oh. This episode establishes a world. Wow. Join the Obsessive Viewer podcast on October sixteenth, twenty fifteen, at the Irving Theater in Indianapolis for. The Obsessive Viewer presents Shocktober in Irvington Part 2. It's a one-night event screening of short horror films from local artists J.P. Leck and Synapshot Productions. There will be giveaways, raffles, interviews with the filmmakers, and so much more. All proceeds will go directly to the Irvington Historical Society. Go to shocktoberinirvington.com for more details. And prepare to be shocked.